church growth and personal work have become a science, an art form. We have books written about them. People preach about it. They talk about it all the time. We hear catchphrases like relationship evangelism, seeker-sensitive, building bridges, felt needs, and, and other kinds of phrases. And, and there's nothing really wrong with those phrases in and of themselves. In fact, there are certain places where I think those phrases are useful and we, we need to use them. However, interestingly, when we get into the New Testament and we take a look at Jesus, we find stories that may call into question some of our modern standards and tactics on evangelism. In fact, recently, I've been reminded of a story in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 27. In Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 27, we find a rich young ruler that's come to Jesus. Now, this guy is the epitome of a seeker. Jesus is on his way out of town, and this man runs up to Jesus and kneels before him and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, if we had somebody that ran into our assembly or ran up to one of us and asked that question, we'd just fall over. I mean, this is the epitome of a seeker. And so here in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27, we get to be the fly on the wall as Jesus demonstrates to his disciples how to evangelize to seekers, how to make a disciple out of seekers. However, when we take a look at what Jesus did here and we compare it to what the modern evangelistic experts tell us, it looks like Jesus blew it. I mean, think about this. This, this guy wants to know what to do in, to inherit eternal life. But by the time Jesus is done with him, he's leaving sorrowfully. Here was really the first century Jewish parallel to our modern yuppies. A young, upwardly mobile professional. I mean, listen, this is, Jesus is trying to turn his disciples into fishers of men. This is a fish. If he, if he's, handles it properly, if he deals with it correctly, not only is he going to catch a fish, but he's going to catch a big fish. Just imagine what a wonderful thing it would have been for Jesus and his itinerant band of disciples to have someone with this kind of cash flow in their midst. But the man leaves. And interestingly... If we were brought up and weaned on much of the modern teaching about evangelism and what's effective and how to bring people in, when we get done with this story, we would almost half expect Jesus to turn to His disciples and say, okay, now guys, listen, that was an example of how not to do it. Let me tell you the mistakes that I made there so that you'll know not to do them yourselves. In fact, I think as we take a look at this text, we can find Jesus making six big mistakes if we're going to follow the modern evangelistic methods and the modern outlook that we see so often portrayed about dealing with seekers. I'd like for us to examine this and see what Jesus did and how that compares with what we're told today and then some lessons for us. Before we do that, would you bow with me, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we lift you up and we praise your name because you are awesome and powerful and amazing. You sent your Son to die for us. And we, we're just in awe of that. We are humbled because of what you have done for us, condescending to save us from our sins. 
And we pray that we will be totally and absolutely committed disciples, willing to give up all things for you, giving up all things for you, counting all things that were gained to us as lost so that we might have the surpassing knowledge of your Son. Father, we so want to be in that upward call to be with you in heaven forever. And we will gladly give up all things from this world and from this life so that we might be with you. We love you, Father, and we thank you for loving us. And we pray that you strengthen and help us to get your message out, to sow the seed, to sow it in love, and to water it and to tend it. And Father, we pray that you would provide the growth as you have promised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we take a look at all six of the mistakes, let's just go ahead and read the story from Mark, 7, uh, Mark 10, verse 17 down to verse 27. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. As we go through this lesson, I'm going to present to you what the modern evangelistic expert would say, and then we're going to back up and talk about being in the school of evangelism with Jesus. The first mistake we would hear that Jesus made is, is that He did not build a relationship bridge with this rich young ruler. How often have we heard and been told, you know what, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Here's this man running up to Jesus. What Jesus should have done is just very slowly built a relationship with him. He should have invited the man to come along with him and eat with him and sit with him and talk with him. And then in time to come after that, once the rich young ruler had realized how much Jesus cared about him, then Jesus could talk about the hard issues of materialism and absolute and total commitment discipleship. Jesus messed up because He didn't first build a relationship bridge with this man. But then we look at what Jesus did. Did Jesus love the man? Did He care? Absolutely. Absolutely. Verse, uh, where is it? Verse 21, Jesus looking at him loved him. But brethren, I want you to notice Jesus didn't wait until the rich young ruler figured out that he loved him to tell him what he needed to hear. We've got to understand that. Now, is it good for us to build relationship bridges with people? Will that help us in our evangelism? Absolutely. But the thing I want us to understand that we learn from Jesus here is that building relationships is not evangelism. Evangelism is teaching people about Jesus and what they need to do to serve Him. 
And we must not deceive ourselves to think that because we're becoming friends with a whole bunch of people and they're eating with us and doing things with us, that we're at that point evangelizing. Because we're not. Evangelism is telling people about Jesus and what they need to do to serve and be committed to Him. The second mistake Jesus made, He didn't address the ruler's felt needs. I can assure you this. This ruler didn't feel like what he needed was to sell all of his possessions and give it to the poor. I can assure you that. But he did come to Jesus saying, I, I want to know how to inherit eternal life. And Jesus could have addressed that felt need. And he could have said to him, you know what, you just hang with me for a while. You just be with me, you watch how I live, and you'll learn how to become a person inheriting eternal life. You'll learn how to do that. And so just, just stick with me and follow me and do what I do. And you know, he could have brought him along slowly, step by step, and, and brought this man along. And, it, it, and think about it. You know, if you just hang out with Jesus for a while, surely you'll learn what it means to, to, to live in such a way to inherit eternal life. Jesus could have addressed that need. Instead of just throwing out that he needed to sell everything he had and give it to the poor, he could have addressed that need. He could have, he could have hooked him on there and said, well, why don't you just hang with me for a while? Just come spend some time with me and watch what I do and live like I live. And, and you'll learn how to inherit eternal life. But that's not what Jesus do, did. What did Jesus do? Jesus didn't address his felt needs. Jesus addressed his actual needs. This man had a problem. He came to Jesus thinking that, that really all he needed was just a little bit of help. Or maybe a change here, a tweak there, modify this, uh, change that just a tad, and then I'll be able to move along and inherit eternal life. But what Jesus recognized is that this man had a God before Jehovah. He didn't need just a little help. He needed a complete life makeover. He needed to get rid of these things that were holding him back, what was dividing and separating him from a true relationship with God. Jesus didn't address his felt needs. Jesus addressed his actual needs. Now, is it beneficial for us to talk to folks about their felt needs? Obviously it is. Of course it is. Sometimes we can move from felt needs to actual needs. But we've got to understand that felt needs are not what saves people. When we paint a picture of a church and a Savior that is only there just to fulfill the needs that we feel, all we are doing is promoting selfishness in unbelievers. And we create a class of Christians that abandon the Lord when they feel like their needs are no longer being met. Brethren, how many people have left the truth with the words, I just don't feel like I'm getting what I need. I'll tell you what, that is the kind of Christian evangelizing through felt needs produces. We've got to convince people of what their real needs are and address those. That is evangelism. The third big mistake that Jesus made is He didn't tailor His message to target His audience's cultural and demographic background. Now, I know that's a big one to swallow, isn't it? But, but we're being told today that is what we've got to do. I know you all have heard of the book, The Purpose Driven Church. When I first read that, I thought, man, this is awesome. This is great. And I looked at, at their, their picture of Saddleback Sam or Steve or, or whatever his name is. And, 
and they target the audience. We've got to find out their cultural and demographic background. And then we need to tailor our message to fit exactly what they wanted. And you know, if Jesus had just done that, if he had just considered the cultural and demographic background of this rich young ruler, he would have known that there is no way that this young, upwardly mobile professional Jew is going to want to sell everything he has. And he could have tailored his message just a little bit differently. You see, Jesus didn't tailor his message based on what the culture and demographic background of this young man would want. He tailored his message to what this young man needed. Do we sometimes need to consider the cultural background? Before I get ahead of myself, let me back up. Something I forgot to mention here. You know, really... This is all the more interesting because the fact is Jesus didn't have to strictly tell him this. It's not as though selling everything you own is a strict doctrinal practice of all Christians. We know that from Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 and verse 4, when Ananias and Sapphira had lied about their gifts as they sold the land for a price higher than they gave, but said they gave all that they had made. Peter told them in, in Acts chapter 5, verse 4, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. You see, Jesus didn't actually have to tell him this. It's not like it's a step in becoming a child of God to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He could have said something else, but he didn't. He told this guy exactly what he didn't want to hear. Because it's what he needed to hear for his situation. But how easy it would have been for him to just tailor that message for, for what that class of people want. And to get him to just hang out with him for a while. And then maybe in time, he could have brought him along to true, total commitment. Do we need to consider the background of the folks to whom we speak? Obviously we do. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 demonstrates Paul did that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Beginning at verse 19, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19 said, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that I, by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, he says. Well, Paul gave consideration to the background of the people he was talking to, and he allowed that to mold how he taught them. But here's the thing that we have to understand. Is that while we consider the background of the person so that we know how to speak to them, the cultural and demographic background of those who are in Christ doesn't matter. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 says, Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you understand this? That discipleship and commitment does not change based on what our cultural or demographic background is. And the same message of discipleship and commitment must be taught to all cultural and demographic backgrounds. It may be that in the presence of the Jews, we're not going to invite them over to eat some pork and then have a Bible study. 
But when we're talking to that Jew or the Gentile, the commitment and discipleship is exactly the same. The fourth mistake. Jesus called attention to minor mistakes. You look again in Mark chapter 10. This rich young ruler comes up, the epitome of seeker. He's just wanting to know. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is the first thing out of Jesus' mouth? He calls into question some semantic issue here of why do you call me good? You know, the reality is, as we're teaching people, we shouldn't be harping on about little minor mistakes. We need to just think about the big picture and just get them to where they want to be with us for a while. And then they might learn what it means to be Christians. But what did Jesus do? First thing out of his mouth is, why are you calling me good? Why are you calling me good? There's none good but God. He called attention to the minor mistake. Why? Because he wanted to provoke thought. He wanted this rich young ruler to understand that if he was really going to call Jesus the good teacher, that ultimately he had to recognize that Jesus was more than just a good teacher. He was God in the flesh. And so we ask, are we supposed to hammer down every minor mistake that comes up, everything that somebody says, every verbal faux pas, every minor issue of doctrine that we, that we hear? Of course not. If we do that while we're studying with them, we'll major in minors, we'll go all over the place, and we'll never get to the point of teaching them the truth of the gospel. I understand that. But do you know there are times when we really do need to hone in on minor mistakes? When they can promote discussion, when they can provoke thought, when they can enter us into a Bible discussion that will help folks get to the big picture of obeying the gospel. I'll give you just one example. One example wherein we need to think about this today. Today, because of the religious confusion that's all in the world, people often ask, once they find out that you're a Christian or you go to church somewhere, as they say, they'll ask you, well, what kind of church are you part of? Or what denomination are you in? And it's becoming more and more common even for sound, faithful Christians to just answer that question by saying, oh, I'm Church of Christ. And if someone like me gets up and says, guys, that's the wrong answer, the person says, oh, come on, Edwin, you know what they meant. Yeah, I know what they meant, but now they don't know what we mean because you answered incorrectly. We don't attend a Church of Christ kind of church. We're not a part of the Church of Christ denomination. We're a part of a local congregation that happens to call itself a Church of Christ. We're a part of the universal body of Christ. And that's it. Oh, but you know what they meant. You know, at that moment, you had an opportunity to say something that might cause them to stop and think and want to know more, but instead, when you just threw off offhandedly an incorrect, unbiblical, unscriptural, wrong answer, you shut down the discussion, and now they don't know what we believe and teach. In fact, you just furthered in their mind that we are just the Church of Christ denomination. Is that really what we want them to think? Or would we rather go ahead and hone in on that minor mistake in order to get to a bigger picture question? That's what Jesus did. Number five, Jesus demanded too much too soon. This is the first contact Jesus has had with this young man. He comes up, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, get rid of everything. Sell everything you own. Give it to the poor. Give up your life wherever you are. You come and follow me as I'm traveling all over the land. That is just too much. That is overwhelming. You know, if Jesus had just backed off, He could have just taken Him step by step slowly. 
just slowly said, just spend a few weeks with me. Just, Just come and hang around me for a while. But that's not what Jesus did. In the school of evangelism with Jesus, what he demonstrated is that he doesn't want any half-baked committed disciples. He wants total commitment. Even though discipleship is a growth process from the very beginning, he wants absolute total commitment. You see, Jesus didn't feel like he was demanding too much too soon. He felt like he was demanding just enough at just the right time. Why? Because the guy asked, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him the answer to this question. You, young ruler, who obviously are materially connected to your things, if you want to inherit eternal life, you've got to sell everything you have and come follow me. That's what this guy needed. Now, do we need to be careful not to overwhelm our contacts the first time we come in contact with them? Of course. Absolutely. But let's not have a knee-jerk reaction and go to the opposite extreme and think that, that if we can just get them to come. You know, so many people today, you know, if we just make it fun, if we just make it exciting where they'll want to come back next week, we do this with our kids all the time, if we just make it fun and exciting where they'll come back next week and they'll spend some time with us, maybe progressively, over time, they'll really get to be a really, truly committed disciple. But here's the issue, brethren. If we get people into the baptistry by teaching them a watered-down, softened, half-baked gospel of commitment, then all we're going to produce is halfway committed Christians. And I'll tell you what we get. We get Christians that we're always afraid that if we teach the whole counsel of God from this pulpit, that they'll end up leaving. And you know what? Because they are rich young rulers, that scares us to death. The gospel is about total commitment from the very start. The sixth big mistake that Jesus made is Jesus was too exclusive. You see, the modern day evangelistic experts would point out to us in verse 23, Jesus said how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus here demonstrated a mindset that no doubt came out in his actions and in his tone of voice that would turn off the rich young ruler. You see, Jesus had too exclusive of a view. Jesus had the idea that only those who are willing to give up everything they have will really enter the kingdom of God. He was too exclusive. He needed to be more inclusive. I mean, clearly, this is a... a, a faithful Jew, he's, he's kept the law from his youth up, or at least he believes he has. Jesus should not look at him as an outsider. I mean, he's really just almost one of us. He just needed to change a little bit. But Jesus recognized that despite the fact that this man was a spiritual man, despite the fact that this man at least believed that he had kept the law from his youth up, Despite that, this man was not on the path to entering the kingdom of heaven. How could Jesus possibly view him as one who was? Now, do we need to find common ground? Do we need to look for a place where we can start with folks and and move from where they are to get them to where they need to be? Of course we should. But if we move from the concept of finding common ground with people so that we can teach from there to a concept that really because they're similar to us, they're just like us, and really they're practically one of us, 
we lose all motivation to evangelize. Brethren, the reason we want to evangelize is because there are people that are not on the path to the kingdom of heaven. But if we think that because they have similar beliefs and they look like us and they're sincere and they're committed, that really they're already Christians, kind of, well, why would we teach them? We only teach people when we're convinced that if they don't get taught the gospel, they're going to go to hell. And when we're convinced of that, then we teach them. Yes, we can start on common ground with those who have similar beliefs. But we cannot look at folks who are not children of God as though they are. We just can't. Jesus didn't. And so we consider that. What are some lessons for us when it comes to issues of evangelism? I'll tell you what, the very first lesson is, is that you don't judge the effectiveness of evangelism based on the response. Was Jesus' evangelism ineffective here in Mark chapter 10 because the man walked away unresponsive? Because he didn't submit? Did Jesus really blow it? You know, obviously, I have preached this lesson somewhat tongue-in-cheek. There's no modern evangelism expert out there that would actually look at this chapter and tell us about all the big mistakes that Jesus made. But you change this story a little bit? What if it wasn't Jesus? What if it was some preacher in Franklin, Tennessee named Edwin Crozier who went around and when somebody said, what have I got to do to inherit eternal life? He said, you've got to keep God's commands, you've got to sell everything you own, and you've just got to follow me. What would they say? Well, now, Edwin messed up big. Let me show you the six mistakes Edwin made. He shouldn't have done this, 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 or this. And they would use the part in Mark chapter 10 and verse 22 as their biggest piece of evidence. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He said, look, this is a seeker. He wanted to know. If Edwin had just done it just right, then look at this big fish he would have caught. But the reality is, brethren, Evangelism is not effective based on how the people respond. Evangelism is effective based on whether or not the truth is taught in love. That's effective evangelism. Effective evangelism is not judged by how many baptisms it produces. It is not judged by how many people it gets in our pews. It is judged by whether or not the truth is taught in love. That's it. And therefore... We don't just look at big churches and growing churches and do what they want. One of the big catchphrases in modern evangelism teaching is, find what God is blessing and do that. And what that means, that's really code language for look around at the churches that are growing and find out the things they're doing and do those same things. But then I remember Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, where Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to light, and those who find it are few. And I suddenly asked the question, why is it that I think the big churches are the blessed churches? Is it possible that the big and growing may not be the ones blessed by God, but the ones deceived by the devil? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that every big church is bad, and I'm not saying that every growing congregation has gone liberal. I'm just pointing out that you don't judge the effectiveness of evangelism based on how people responded. We judge it based on whether the truth is being taught in love. Similar to that, it's a second lesson. Don't fear rejection. 
Don't fear rejection. Jesus taught this man and he rejected it. And according to modern evangelistic theory, it looks like Jesus made all kinds of big mistakes. And and allow me to anticipate an objection that I know somebody's going to make about all of this. They're going to say, well, yeah, but Edwin, that was Jesus. And he knew the hearts of men. That's true. I want you to think about that. Jesus knew the heart of this young man. He knew that this young man would not respond to the message the way he taught it. And he taught it that way anyway. That's phenomenal. But you know, this isn't the only man who rejected Jesus. Do you remember in John chapter 6, when about 5,000 people who were following along at the beginning of the chapter, they wanted to make him king, and by the end of the chapter, they were leaving him? Out of 5,012, about, at the end of that, he had only 12 followers. You remember that? When Jesus was on the cross... He was rejected by everybody except the thief on the cross next to him. And even after he was resurrected, by the time we get to the day of Pentecost, there were only 120 out of the thousands of people Jesus had talked to that were still following him. Don't fear rejection. The fact is, when we are rejected, we are in good company. That's not to say that everybody will reject. There will be some that will accept. But if we get back and, and we're afraid of rejection and, oh, I've got to teach it just right so that, you know, so that I know that they'll respond properly and I need to follow these rules that all these experts have come up with because cause that's really the only way to get it done where people will respond, then we won't end up teaching anybody and nobody will accept. But that's okay because nobody rejected either, right? But they'll still go to hell. Third lesson for us. Our job is to get the needed message out and let God deal with the rest. I know I'm beginning to sound like a one-trick pony. It seems that this point makes its way into just a whole bunch of my sermons these days. And and really the reason for that is because I am constantly trying to remind myself uh, to get over my fears and my issues about various things. But here's the deal. Our job is not to convert people. Our job is to sow the seed. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom he believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Our job is to plant the water. It's God's job to give the growth. Do we need to try to be wise and diplomatic? Of course we do. I know that. But we need to lose this concept that we're going to come up with the perfect way to evangelize people, and until we do, we're just going to have to keep our mouths shut. Because our job is just to teach. It's God's job to give the growth. And let Him do it His way. And finally, with God, all things are possible. As I was preparing for this lesson, I got out some of the books with which I've been so enamored over the past few years and and looked at some of the things they said about evangelism. And repeatedly, I I would see things like, now look, you're probably not going to be able to convert people that aren't much like you. You're probably not going to be able to do this. You're probably not going to be able to do that. So really, just do this. And then I thought in the story about Mark 10 and verse 27, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And, And it dawned on me, you know what? I can't save anyone. I can't save the people who are like me. I can't save the people who are different than me. I can't save the people who are richer than me or poorer than me, blacker than me or whiter than me, the Hispanics, the Indians, the the women. I, I can't save any of them. So why on earth would I base my evangelistic method on my human wisdom of the people I think I have more influence over? Why would I do that? 
why not just scatter the seed to anyone and everyone I can and let God cause the growth? Because you see, with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing. And so let's base our evangelism on God's work. Let's base our evangelism plans on God causing the growth, not on us causing it. That's what we need to do. I'll tell you, this was a tough study for me. Actually, I got the idea. I was listening to a sermon from another brother, and he was just in the story about the rich young ruler, and it hit me as I was reading that. I thought, wow. When you look at what Jesus does here, this is completely opposite from what we're told by all our evangelism experts today. And because of that, it's kind of shaken my evangelistic world. A lot of the things that I put a lot of stock in, a lot of the tactics and methods that I thought were just wonderful, it's caused me to back off and, and question them. And it's actually led me to some soul-searching questions about me, but I want to share them with you. Because, you see, interestingly, as I, I'm sitting here reading this story, and I realize that the story is calling into question all these things in my books in my library, and I'm pulling out these books in my library, and even as I'm reading them, I'm thinking, oh, that's a great idea. We ought to be doing it just like that. And I thought, wait, wait a minute. And I asked myself, why am I so enamored with these evangelistic, op- uh, evangelistic methods that are so opposite from what Jesus did? Why is it that if somebody evangelized the way Jesus did, I would say they were making mistakes But then I get into these books and I'm enamored with all their methods. And I had to ask the question, is it because the real members that we want are the rich young ruler? I mean, just think about it. Look at all that we could do if we get the rich young ruler, the young, upperly mobile, white-collar professionals that are making lots of money. Think about what we could do if we had those people as members. And think of all the trouble we would have if we had the distressed and the oppressed and the downtrodden and the poor and the really sinful. Think of all the problems if we would have the very kind of people that were so attracted to Jesus, if they would be attracted to us. Think of all the problems we'd have. And so I had to ask the question, is the reason we're so enamored with all these other methods and not the way Jesus did it? Because it's the rich young ruler that I really want as a member here, and I know he won't respond to the way Jesus did it. And then I had to ask a second question. Is it because I recognize that of all the people in the Scripture that Jesus taught, culturally, I'm actually most like the rich young ruler? And I know that if I heard that kind of evangelism, I wouldn't respond to it either. Think about that, brethren. Are we evangelizing? Are we getting the message out? If so, to whom and how? And if not, why not? What message of commitment and discipleship are we teaching? What message of commitment and discipleship are we living? 